This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today it's my great privilege to be joined by Jordan Alexander Stein, Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Fordham University. Jordan is the author of When Novels Were Books, published in 2020 by Harvard University Press. Jordan, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you. Ryan, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Well, this is a fantastic book. I'm really excited to talk with you about it. But first, I wonder if you could share with us a little bit about yourself. Um, Sure. Um, Let's see. I am, as you said, a professor at Fordham University in New York City. I teach in the English department, um, also in the comparative literature program, um, also actually recently in the African and African-American studies program. That's new and, and exciting to me. Um, my degrees are mostly in English. Um, it was after I finished graduate school that I got a postdoc at the Library Company of Philadelphia, which is a, a private research library in Philadelphia. It was founded by Benjamin Franklin. And um, at a certain point in the 20th century, they looked around and they realized they had all these 18th century books. So they kind of converted their purpose um, from a contemporary library to a, an archive. And it was there that I was, I learned a lot from the librarians and from the other fellows about how to be a book historian. I, I went there to do a project actually on the history of sexuality and it became uh, a book history project, uh, I think in some ways for the better. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think that's, that's how uh, this book came to be, how someone who you know, has degrees in English came to try to you know, write something that was so historical. That's excellent. Well, let's kind of start with, um, I'd like to ask you a little bit about the big picture of the book. It seems like one of the big ideas of the novel is, or of the book, is that the novel, as it really came into its own at the, at the end of the 18th century, wasn't actually very, well, novel, was it? It, it, it kind of, it has a longer antecedent than um, has often been recognized. Is that, is that an accurate general overview of your, of your book? Yeah, I, no, that's right. Um, scholars, you know, where did the English novel come from is a kind of perennial question in literary studies. And it's not a question that we've ever been, scholars have ever been able to answer in any definitive way. There's different competing theories. The predominant way that the novel is studied is, um, in terms of literary form. So the idea being that, um, what a novel is, what it represents is different than, you know, drama or poetry. It's it's a, a distinct set of representations and it's it's that kind of formal innovation that scholars have usually uh, tried to study. The problem, I think, with that approach, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of merits to it, of course, but the problem I was having with it was that it imagines that something that would be a break, a rupture, would also sort of instantly be popular. 
And in my experience of the world, um, things that are too new and too different don't tend to get taken up right away because people don't know what to do with them. So, um, so I thought, well, what is, and other scholars have tried to, to think about this too and say, well, look at the ways that literary characters are similar to dramatic characters or look at the ways that events that are presented in novels are similar to the ways that events were presented in newspapers. So other people have tried to think about, about continuities. Um, I think the, the whatever, as much as, there, as there's an innovation in, in my book, what it tries to innovate is to say that, well, it's not just in terms of literary form that there are continuities, but also in terms of material format. That novels are books, and as such, they look like many other kinds of books that are existing in the 18th century. Other prose narratives that are, for example, uh, spiritual autobiographies or different kinds of, of um, Christian soteriological writings. And um, my argument is that there are there are formal relationships between these things, but there are also material relationships as physical objects. Um, you know, walking into a bookshop in the 18th century, you would have uh, seen these things similar in size, similar in price point, similar in shape. And that that uh, that made a difference. It's so interesting. Now, for those of us who haven't been trained in the disciplines of bibliography or book history, I'm wondering if you could just give us a, a quick crash course into some of the most relevant lingo for your for your argument. So, you know, what what are formats, gatherings, leaves, folio, quarto, octavo, and and how how did early modern reader, readers judge books by their cover? It's a good question. Um, I, the, I think the most important thing to understand, and this is also what I tend to bring up in, in classrooms um, when I try to get students to understand book history really quickly, is um, the most important thing is size. So you, you have a printing press and a printing press has a like a paper tray, a place where the paper goes, right? Um, but the paper has to be held down, which means that, you know, it, it's like it fits in a frame almost. But the frame is this, it's wood and it's the same size. So your paper always has to be the same size. Now, your books aren't always the same size. So how does that work? Well, the paper gets folded. And the question is, how many times does the paper get folded? If it's folded fewer times, it's going to be a bigger book, right? The, the end page size is going to be different. If it's folded more times, it's going to be smaller. What you can immediately see from that is that the fewer times it's folded, the larger the book, the more paper it uses. And therefore, the more expensive it has to be because the, there's a greater cost for the supplies that go into making it. Right. In order for the order for, order for the printer to make back their money, they have to charge more for a larger format book. So that so size, I think, is the most kind of relevant issue. Larger books, because they are more expensive, are usually more prestigious. Um, important works, scientific works, uh, Bibles. Um, the fact people sometimes um, people who are familiar with Shakespeare know about the Shakespeare first, first the first and second folio. Folio is the is a large format book. The fact that Shakespeare was published in folio is unusual for uh, a playwright hmm. in in the in the early seventeenth century. So the the format in which Shakespeare is published bespeaks the significance of Shakespeare. And scholars have argued that to a certain extent his early reputation, early posthumous reputation was made because of the book formats, right? So somebody thought this was important and then people said, oh, this must be important because it's being published in this really expensive, fancy way. Most books, however, are not published in folio or the next size down, which is called quarto. Most are published in smaller formats, um, what's called octavo, octavo, duodecimo, and, and there are further Latinate numbers from there. Um, Novels, early novels in the 18th century are usually published in octavo or duodecimo. They're small format books, but a lot of religious books are also small format books. 
in the 21st century, if you walk into a bookstore, um, books are usually, or you go to an online superstore, books are organized by subject, right? You have fiction, nonfiction, self-help, whatever. In the 18th century, books were organized by size hmm. in a bookstore. And so the distinction between like a novel, which we now understand to be a fictional narrative in prose, and like a spiritual autobiography, which we might understand to be a non-fictional narrative in prose, the difference between those things is not huge because they're going to exist in a bookstore in the same section because they are the same size. And this is, um, and this is, and it's, I tried to, I hope I didn't oversimplify that, but this is, I think, um, kind of the whole theory of format that, uh, that I'm working with in, in the study that I wrote. Yeah. It's such an interesting, um, kind of insight into something that again, it just seems like it's just staring you in the face, but once you dive into it, it, it yields so many interesting observations. Now, I have to say, as a quick aside, um, Harvard University Press did a really lovely job on your book. I just, I don't know if this is something that you specifically requested because of the nature of this book, but man, it's such such lovely paper and and good binding. Um, how did you how did you manage that? You know, the press deserves a lot of credit. I think they made a very beautiful book. I mean, when, when one writes a book about the history of books, one obviously has the kind of self-reflexive concerns that you're raising. Um, Harvard University Press did a fantastic job. Um, my acquisitions editor was Sharmila Sen. She's wonderful to work with. And at a certain point in the process, she sent me uh, the cover that, that you mm -hmm. see on the book and said, I think this should be Matt. And I think it's beautiful. And I wrote back and I said, about this as you know everything else you are correct um the production folks were fantastic um people were uh, heather hughes was the woman i was working with to kind of um organize the image permissions and she was so patient um and i you know because mm -hmm. it, it takes forever the book cannot officially go into production until you not only have all the text corrected but also all the images um yeah. and uh i would like to tell you that i'm completely on top of all tasks at all times but it turns out that um some things are hard to be on top of. And she was so patient with me. And I'm, I'm so grateful because I think the end result is, uh, it's a beautiful book. I, I'm, I'm very proud of that part of it, even though, again, I didn't have that much to do with it. <laughs> right. Well, to our listeners, you know, you just, ha you'll have to go get yourself a copy to, to fully appreciate, um, just the, the, the just nice elegantness of this book. Well, um, the first two chapters of the book work together to advance an argument that literary characters or being developed long before the novel as we really come to know it. So what are some of the earliest antecedents to these kind of literary characters? Or, and, and in particular, what's this notion of the, of the negative figure? Yeah, I, I mentioned before that the history of the novel is usually studied by literary scholars as a kind of examination of literary form. The argument that I'm making in the book is to say, you know, yes, form, but also format, right? That these things work together. And I thought that the way to make that argument would, you know, cause I'm not, I'm not, you know, in complete disagreement with my colleagues who study literary form or, you know, my discipline that is concerned with this thing. I, I think, I think there's merit to it. So I thought, well, maybe the way to demonstrate format is not to the exclusion of form, but to kind of in tandem with form. And I, I settled on character as a kind of formal figure because it seems to me that novels are usually the stories of characters that, that, that this, this hugely matters um, as, as a, consistent formal feature of the novel. The way that I was thinking, so what is a character? A character is a figural representation of a person, right? Um, and I was thinking, well, you know, what are the defining features of character? And it seems to me that at least in the English novel, you know, starting with something like Richardson's Pamela, 
in the 1740s, character is figured in terms of vulnerability, right? Pamela is, is, um, she isn't raped, but she's, she's subject to near rape, right? She's, she's threatened the integrity of her body and her consciousness are, are under assault. And that's part of the, the story of the novel. It's also part of how her interior life is, is reflected. So I got interested in, okay, okay, well, are there other things that are figuring character, as I put it negatively, figuring it uh, in terms of vulnerability? And the answer is like, yes, there's a long tradition in um, Protestant confessional narratives and different kinds of spiritual autobiographies. Um, I traced it all the way back to Augustine's Confessions, which isn't Protestant, but um, which gets taken up in the Renaissance as, as a particularly important um, uh, well, style guide for people who are learning to write Latin, but also um, kind of uh, text for thinking about the nature of, of confession, um, which is something that that uh, in the Reformation Protestants do get interested in. So this kind of negative, August, what Augustine does is, I had to learn Latin for this, so I'll, I'll explain it in detail. Um, what Augustine does is he said, you know, he spends time describing his conversion. Augustine thinks that he can talk about his conversion, but that's not going to make you converted. Right. So the representation of conversion is not the same thing as the experience of conversion. So how do you then represent conversion? And the way that he does it is is through double negatives. He says things like, well, I'm not unsaved. Right. And and that rhetorical figuration, I think, gets taken up um, in in the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation in a lot of confessional narratives. And I try to show that it's also taken up. It's in Pamela, but it's also in Robinson Crusoe. It's in a lot of early English novels, but it's also coexisting in other kinds of prose narratives. So that's the that's the work of those uh, first two chapters is to really kind of lay that out and say there's this there's this figural continuity, and also there's this format continuity. And if you can put those two things together, you begin to have support for the argument that um, novels aren't actually that new in the moment of their appearance. Hmm. Well, throughout the your book, you you draw attention to how the book itself as a medium had certain kinds of reading habits that it introduced or that it encouraged. Um, and one of the, the kind of striking observations you make is that books as a medium themselves didn't really encourage cover to cover reading. Uh, so how did the, the codex, uh, you know, these early versions of books and, and, and the early printed Bibles influence reading habits for early modern readers, the first purchasers of of print books in the kind of print renaissance uh, explosion. And, and when did that start to change? When did cover to cover reading start to, to really become the, the way to read books? It's a great question. Here's the thing about anybody who's ever picked up a book, right? Understands that you, this is a random access technology. You could open a book instantly to any page. If you, if anybody's ever played around with a scroll, it's harder to do that because you have to kind of scroll to the place. But if also, um, if you're looking at a website, you know, you can use the find feature. You can you can search, but if you're not doing that, you're scrolling around. You have to go through the text in order to find the place you're looking for. Books are so websites and scrolls are not random access features necessarily, whereas books are. If you can open a book anywhere at any time, it raises a question like, why would you read it cover to cover? Um, and and my argument is, and it, you know, I, I learned this from other people, and, and you know, Peter Stalybrass, for example, deserves a lot of credit for his work on Bibles. I, I learned a lot from it. But um, one of the ways that Protestants, in particular, read Bibles is they chapter and verse, right? They they, they jump in at, at will or at need. Um, whereas, you know, um, like 
Jews who, um, with the Torah as a scroll, and it's read cyclically, like you read it in order, because the format of the sacred book prescribes that. Whereas in Protestant, um, I guess practice, you can you can jump around. This because the earliest printed books, at least um, in Europe, but especially in in the Anglophone world, are Bibles and Bible commentaries, um, related books like Psalters. You can jump around, and and Protestant practices of, for example, typological reading and other things seem to be, if not encouraged, certainly supported uh, by the random access feature of the Codex. A little bit of a chicken and egg problem. It's hard to figure out exactly what supports what, but in any case, these things seem to work in tandem. By the end of the 18th century, people get more and more interested in reading books continuously, and it's not 100% clear why this happens. I wasn't able to come up with an answer. I can just tell you that it seems to happen, but you get more and more books that are encouraging continuous rather than discontinuous reading, books that are discouraging readers from using the random access feature of a codex. Um, if you've ever picked up a contemporary novel, the way that it's printed, um, you, you can't just open it at random because you won't know where you are. There's nothing on the page to orient you unless you happen to be, you know, open to whatever, the beginning of chapter six. You don't necessarily know where you are. So you that's a book that that is visually um, organized and printed in a way that encourages you to read it continuously. You get similar things sometimes with almanacs. Uh, you can jump into an almanac wherever. At the same time, they're organized from, you know, January to December, they're organized uh, linearly. And presumably, you know, since time also progresses that way, or at least we experience it that way, uh, you know, you would you would read it in order, even if you didn't you know, start from the beginning every time you opened it. This move toward continuous reading is something that seems to happen in the 18th century. It's it's largely how we think about books. You're meant to read a book from, from cover to cover, but this uh, represents relatively speaking in the history of the codex, a kind of recent development. And that's something, um, the, the transition from random access to continuous reading is, is something that I try to trace also because I'm interested in novels, which tend to get read continuously, but it is, um, just technologically speaking, a little bit weird that novels are codexes, codices, right? Like it's not, it's not the most logical, um, you don't need the random access feature, which is the feature of the codex. It would make more sense in some ways for a novel to be a scroll. And yet that's not how we do it. So this is what I'm trying to track. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. It's so interesting, Jordan. Well, in chapter three, you talk about text networks, which seems to have kind of several layers of meaning. There's networks of texts themselves because, well, the notion of copyright or trademark didn't really exist, but there's also networks of readers and sellers and markets. So what does the 18th century journey from religious narrative to kind of the literary novel really start to look like in, in, in your third chapter? Yeah. So if novels in certain formal and material ways have continuity with other kinds of narratives that aren't novels, and that's my claim, if that's true, then um, 
why do, how do novels take off? What distinguishes novels? Because um, we do understand them to be different. And the rise of fictionality, like the, the kind of growing sense that these are fictional is part of it, but that comes in late. That's something that really starts to crystallize like in the 1790s, at least in the, in the Anglophone world. So before that, um, you have what, uh, what I called and what, what you called a text network. What I'm trying to describe with this phenomenon is that is um, a kind of like promos, tie-ins, peripherals. These are things we call it in our contemporary world, but a situation where you might be aware of or have contact with a text without having read it. And if you think about the kind of enormous um, engines that exist around things like Harry Potter or Game of Thrones, um, where there's there's not only like, you know, cinematic adaptation from these novels, but also like memes and other kinds of tie-ins, right? It's completely possible to be literate in the phenomenon without having read it. This is a large scale version of something that I think gets started in the 18th century. And, and one of the examples I'm very interested in is Richardson's Pamela, which uh, generates a huge number of se- like, like unauthorized sequels, imitations, um, engravings, so there's multimedia adaptations, there's dramatic adaptations, there's poems that get written in response to or in continuation of it. There are sat- satirical responses. It's, if, if you were hanging out in London and call it 1742, it would be very hard not to be aware of Pamela even if you had never read the text. That's the text network phenomenon that I'm interested in. And it seems to me this, um, and it, it's a feature of a market. It's a feature of capitalism, right? Uh, the way that, that a text can grow um, because people, the novel is popular and then people want to get in on it and make money on, on things that are related to it. That um, is the text, text network that I'm, that I'm most interested in. You see how immediately how um, something like, the integrity of the text, the real authentic text, and the genuine author aren't concerns in a text network. It, it blows up beyond those things. And I think this is certainly true in, in our meme culture, is the way that um, aspects of a text or remediations or, or um, uh, other elements of text can circulate without, you know, whatever belonging to Warner Brothers. Um, that's not right. That's so, so it's, it's, uh, it's the growth beyond the original authorship and, and proprietary ownership that's part of a text network. At the same time, those things are allowed to go on because they increase the fame and the value of the proprietary commodity. And and I'm I think these things now exist in our globalized capital world at a much bigger scale than they existed in the 18th century. But my argument is that they they sort of emerge in the 18th century um, and and make a lot of money there. Text networks, in keeping with the argument that I'm making in in that chapter, but also in the book, text networks tend to be anchored by characters. So Pamela, um, I talk about David Brainerd, but also again Harry Potter. Um, right? It's not an accident that there that that uh, even if there are elements um, to the text that aren't just the character, the, the, the proper name of the person seems to anchor the network. That seems to matter. Um, and then there was another point, which was that. Um, if the if te- text networks can center novels and can kind of blow up fictional characters, part of what I want to show is that in the 18th century they can also uh, non-fictional characters can also anchor a text network. And this is this is the example of David Brainerd, who was um, a New England missionary who wrote it. He died young, but but you know after having published a diary that became extremely important 
for other missionaries. But the way that Brainerd talks about himself as as vile and humble before God is really similar to the way that Pamela writes about herself. And so these two text networks, one clearly fictional, one clearly nonfictional, I think have kind of parallel tracks. Um, and I think that was still possible in the 1740s when both texts appeared. It, it becomes less possible later on. But yeah. That's, that's right. And, and so what you've shown is that for most of the 18th century, these, because of the similar format, some of these, you know, non-fictional character books and fictional character books would have been sitting right next to each other on the table. And and you talk about how at the end of the century, you you really start to have uh, publishers and printers start to separate between the religious publishing industry and the literary publishing industry. How did that separation come about? So one of the things that happens, right, is is if just to stick with the examples of Pamela, fictional, David Brainerd, non-fictional, they're both um, subject to text networks. They're both getting adapted, remediated, republished, recirculated. They're both vulnerable figures. One's fictional, one's non-fictional. Um, they're also being published by and circulating in the same kinds of sh- the same formats. But same, same, like in some cases, like the same printers, the same people are actually involved in the creation of these two texts. That's the piece that really starts to change at the end of the 18th century. And it starts to change because um, of the invention of, of what's you know, basically religious philanthropy, where you have um, what we would now call not-for-profit organizations that aren't specifically the church. Who are um, they were called? Historians call them voluntary associations, but they're sort of they're like kind of do good or philanthropic societies. Um, often they're existing in relationship to churches or church membership, but they're not necessarily um, under the auspices of the church itself. So they're they're kind of semi-private. Voluntary associations uh, are often situations where people will get together and raise money to um, publish uh, Bibles or. Um, pious books for the poor, right? So they're meant for the people with more resources are giving books to people with fewer resources. The problem again is always the cost. And the most expensive thing about books always, always is paper. Um, you, you can't, um, you can drop almost every other cost, but you can't drop that. If you're giving books away, you're losing money on them because you're not recouping the costs of printing or paper. Even if someone volunteers their labor, there's still the material cost of, of paper and ink. Voluntary associations in the, like, so call it the last quarter of the 18th century, the last, like, in three decades of that century, voluntary associations are just always trying to produce more and more books they can give away um, for less and less money. And one of the things that starts to happen is the, is the kind of forerunners of what become in the 19th century tracks, which are just kind of small um, books without much of a binding, you know, pamphlets almost that are given away. So, so one of the ways you solve the problem is, you know, even smaller formats, even cheaper books. But the other thing that happens is um, voluntary associations are trying to figure out, well, how can we reduce the expense of printing? How can we cut the labor costs if we can't cut the material costs? And the answer they decide is, well, we'll we'll start to have our own printing presses. We'll start to do in-house jobs instead of sending them out to be done. What this produces, as far as I can tell, is a kind of subtraction. Whereas I said a minute ago that the same printers are printing religious and non-religious books in a place like London, all of a sudden they're not they're not printing religious books. Those are being done in-house, not in, in the kind of commercial marketplace. This subtraction of religious publishing has an impact on the economics of printing. It also um, 
is sort of the first time that religious organizations and novels, which is say like non-religious texts, begin to understand themselves as competitors with each other. So novels exist in the 1740s, early 1740s, but they don't, the, the anti-novelism, the religious anti-novelism um, for which, you know, history novels is sort of famous, that doesn't really begin for 50 years. It begins in the mm-hmm. 1790s. And my argument is that it's actually the economic substratum that is causing a sense of competition rather than anything about the content of novels versus, um, versus religious books. Part of why I, part of what I'm able to say when I tell the story this way is that the rise of the novel isn't so much a story about, you know, how the novel showed up and took over because everyone loved it. It's sort of a story about how at a certain point, the novel's what's left over when other things are kind of moving out of the London market. Doesn't mean novels aren't important. Doesn't mean people didn't like them or didn't catch on, but it's, it's less of a kind of progressive story of ascendancy and more a kind of ironic story of circumstance. And that's, that's, you know, historiographically, the way that I'm I'm trying to tell the story of the rise of the novel differently. So interesting. Well, a- after um, this division has started to take place, as we move into the 19th century, you uh, in in your final chapter, you talk about how book ownership becomes almost a kind of performance art um, to to represent your your culture and your uh, wealth or or just your uh, with itness and, and social structures. So, so how does, and, and then also along this, in this chapter, you talk about how literary criticism begins to develop alongside the kind of exclusivity of the novel and in, in this new market to reify the genre. So t- talk a little bit about how the 19th century starts to really cement this, uh, this new idea of the novel. Well, two things here. One is that um, novels are, books, but in so much as they're books, they're also commodities. So there are reasons why we read books, but there's also reasons why we buy books and we don't always buy them to read them. We buy, sometimes buy them, sometimes we buy them because we want to, we, we aspire to read them. Sometimes we yeah. buy them because, you know, we're out with a friend or we're on a date and like it would be, you know, you want to be seen to be somebody who has good taste, right? There's all kinds of, and, and this is true now, but it was, it was true then. And so I'm, I'm very interested in, in the ways that um, once you start to think about books, as material objects, you think about them as commodities bought and sold, the history of reading has to expand to accommodate things that aren't just reading. And because there are, again, things that people do with books that aren't reading them cover to cover or reading them at all. Um, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I, I, I have at moments in my life, you know, used a big dictionary as a doorstop, right? It's not because I don't read or don't know words or don't use a dictionary. It's because I, I needed it for something else. And I think that these experiences are, are really ordinary, but they often get written out of, of the history of book and or the history of reading, certainly. And I'm trying to bring them back in. What starts to happen, though, to answer your other question in the 19th century is that um, you get the rise of kind of literary periodicals. So, so part of what happens is, is in the 18th century, there's a distinction between printers and publishers. Printers are the people who are, are putting, you know, paper to type. They're, they're actually making books. Publishers are the people who are paying for it, who are buying the supplies. And they're not always the same people. In the 19th century, they increasingly start to be the same people. And you get the kind of alignment or consolidation of printing and publishing together. When that starts to happen more and more, larger houses, better capitalized firms also start to think about advertising and you get the creation of often literary magazines that are under the auspices of publishers, um, uh, Harper's Bazaar, um, Bentley's Monthly, right? These are Harper and Bentley being like two, you know, two important firms, one in New York and one in London, 
but you get similar kinds of things, many of which continue to exist for a long time into the 20th century. These publishers are often tagging their authors, the people whose novels they're publishing, to also write for the literary magazines, right? So there's there's a there's a circularity, and so you have, um, you know, a novelist reviewing another novelist book. Both novelists are published by the same uh, publisher, and that they're so reviewing in in a magazine that's also published by that publisher, right? So you sort of there's there's some there's some in-house uh, uh, puffing is what it was called in the 19th century or, or inflation that's going on, but it's in these publications that you often um, people who are novelists have to figure out how to be critics, right? And, and the, the kind of emergence of literary criticism is happening in conjunction with um, the expansion of of novels. What I'm interested in, again, is the fact that it's the same publishers. It's, it's happening under the same um, economic and cultural authority. So that novelists on the one hand, but also publishers have to figure out well, what's the difference between literature and literary criticism. How can we have these things coexist side by side? And I think it's the coexistence side by side that actually produces the necessity of a distinction or a definition. Um, I'm not sure if I explained that as clearly as I should have, but the point is that um, what happens in the 19th century is, on the one hand, um, novelists are reviewing other novelists' books and you know making claims about where they fit in the history of the novel, one. And two, characters in novels are often seen to read novels. right? So, so on the one hand, criticism is making an argument about the history of the novel, but also novels are starting to make an argument about the history of the novel. And, and what I do, the, the last, the epilogue is like, it's like, you know, 15 pages. So I moved through this very quickly, but it's me trying to say like, there, there is a reason why the history that I'm interested in, the history of the relationship between form and format in the 18th century isn't known into the 19th and 20th centuries. And the answer has to do with the fact that like, um, the history of the novels being rewritten, both by the invention of criticism and by the embedding of criticism in novels. And that those things are are making us think about genre and reading and not about material form, which is, um, I think, the part of the history that, that gets lost. Yeah, well, you know, it's a, it's a tight argument, and I think this is a, a well-positioned book to to help shape the field in, in some, some really fascinating ways. And so I'm curious to see how more people uh, pay closer attention to this interplay between form and format. I think you've, you set us up well to think in those ways. So I'm, I'm curious now that this, now that when novels were books is printed and published and in a beautiful format that we can uh, hold in our hands, what's next for you? Well, first of all, thanks for those kind words. Um, you know, you, you spend whatever ten years of your life writing a book, and you, you never know how it's going to read it. Um, so it's 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 nice to think that you know, somebody liked it. So I appreciate that very much. Um, I'm working on a couple of of short things, uh, trying to think about what's next. I have um, I've begun doing a little bit of research. Um, I, I decided I wanted to learn more about the Caribbean. So I, my, the, this book, um, when novels were books, thinks about both um, like London which is the center of Anglophone printing in the 18th century, but also the English provinces, but also the North American colonies. And I thought, okay, the piece of the story that's maybe missing is the Caribbean. So let me, let me learn some things about, about printing in the Caribbean. And it turns out to just be a very understudied uh, thing. There was a certain amount of work done about a hundred years ago, but not that much since. 
and the place where there's kind of the least seems because uh, English printing obviously is happening in, in Jamaica, it's happening in Antigua, but the place where there's the least information as far as I've been able to find is about um, the French colony of Saint-Domingue, which becomes the nation of Haiti. And so um, I'm just kind of uh, brushing off my French and and doing some some digging around, but I am trying to figure out if it's if it's possible or or even desirable to try to figure out how to write a history of the book in Haiti. Part of the interest here, as far as I've been able to figure out, is that um, the French do set up some amount of printing, uh, including printing presses in a couple of different cities on the island. Um, with the Haitian Revolution, um, the early uh, for the first government of Haiti after like eighteen oh three, eighteen oh four is using the same printing presses to publish what are now, um, you know, Haitian national uh, newspapers and, and other publications. And, and this is true to a certain extent, even into like the reign of Henri Christophe, like into the 18 teens. And so I'm, I'm very interested in like, what kind of a story is there to tell about the continuities between colonial and post-colonial printing? And if that could teach us something about, um, about printing in a more general way. So I think, I think the interest in, in history of the book and new world in the 18th century is taking a, a more political um, and, and maybe more post-colonial turn, but uh, you know, find me in 10 years and I'll probably know the answer. Well, if, if new books network is still around uh, when this one's ready, I'm sure we'd love to have you on and, uh, and hear all about it. So that sounds like a very fun project. Thank you. We'll see. Well, this has been a conversation with Jordan Alexander Stein, author of when novels were books. You can get your copy from Harvard University Press. Jordan, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. And thanks to our listeners for tuning into this episode of the New Books Network. Visit newbooksnetwork.com to browse our catalog of over 10,000 episodes. And of course, share this episode with a friend. That's it for now, and I hope you have a great day. <laughs>